friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week at Conversations. Today we will be talking about religious uh, liberty with Nathaniel Hurd of the Religious Freedom Institute, specifically at the ongoing attacks on pro-life Americans like me <laughs> that work at pregnancy, re- uh, pregnancy resource centers and also against churches. The numbers are staggering lately. And really, all these attacks are being outright ignored by the Biden administration, who spends a lot of time talking about domestic terrorism, but not any time at all acknowledging all these instances um, that affect so many good Americans. Nathaniel Hurd will join us to look at the full report at the bottom of the hour. But first, despite the attacks, of which there are many, our pro-life work does not stop in the post-Roe world. In fact, it is changing and expanding. And one group that is doing tremendous work is the USCCB's Walking with Moms in Need program. It supports mothers and families, soon-to-be moms, and also their babies, uh, in order for them to choose life and form good families as well as thrive. My co-host Maureen Ferguson joins me as we welcome Kat Talalas. She's the Assistant Director of the Pro-Life Communications and the Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities for the USCCB. Also, Chelsea Gomez, who serves as Program Consultant to uh, bring Walking to Moms in Need to dioceses across the country. Welcome to the show, Kat and Chelsea. Thank you so much, Gracie, for having us on. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, it's our honor and our pleasure, and we wanted to check in with you again. You were on, Kat, several months ago. Maybe it was a year ago that uh, this program was just getting off the ground after a lot of planning and a lot of, I'm sure, intense uh, energy behind it. It's the program of Walking with Moms in Need from the USCCV, something that right now I can't imagine anything more important from so many different perspectives now that we're living in this post-Roe world from the, of course, from the actual perspective of the material needs and the and the spiritual and um, psychological needs of, 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 of mothers and their families, um, and also from even the, po- the political perspective and, and the, the big picture perspective of, of, a, of a country trying to come to terms with a whole new way of, um, of dealing with this very difficult question of abortion. So thank you again for joining us. And um, Kat, what is the core mission? Why don't you give us a refresher on the core mission of the program and, and what you're hoping it will accomplish? Sure. Well, Walking with Moms in Need is a process by which Catholic parishes walk in the shoes of pregnant and parenting moms in need who are vulnerable in their communities. And after this process of evaluating what it would actually be like to be a mother in need in my local community, if I were pregnant and I were struggling, or if I were parenting young children and having difficulties, where would I turn? After answering those questions, parishes then undergo an analysis and decide how can we stand in that gap 
and truly walk with these women as our sisters. So so this is an effort to get the people in the pews to step it up and see how <laughs> all of us can can assist women in need. And and as Gracie said, it's it's hard to imagine a more important part of the pro-life movement right now in our post-Roe era. It, you know, I'm I'm here in Washington, D.C., where there's so much focus on protecting unborn children and their mothers in the law. But of course, there's always been, you know, twin pillars of the pro-life movement, protecting uh, children and mothers in, with the force of the law. But but the equally important, if not more important pillar of supporting pregnant mothers and their children in need. So so tell us how I know this program was initially launched quite a while ago, just before the pandemic hit. So uh, I know yes. there's been a, a bit of a relaunch. And of course, I'm sure things have been accelerated since the Dobbs decision came down. So so tell us, how is it going, uh, especially post-Dobbs? Well, as you said, the we had always planned to launch Walking with Moms in Need of March of 2020 for the 25th anniversary of Evangelium Vitae. Little did we know that that very month, the pandemic would completely change the entire world and actually exacerbate the situation for many vulnerable women who were in a challenging pregnancy or in a challenging home situation. So we didn't we did not anticipate it, but it actually ended up being God's providential timing to ask parishes to turn their attention to pregnant and parenting moms in need. The anticipation of the Dobbs case happening definitely accelerated, I think, the interest in many places to having preparations for what this outcome could be, right? Having pastoral, a pastoral response available if there would be an increase in women seeking, either seeking one abortion or seeking an alternative to abortion if there was somehow a, an abortion restriction. So Dobbs definitely intensified what um, what the initial launch already, you know, kind of laid the groundwork for. And now we see that there has been a great interest, especially after the outcome of the Dobbs decision, which really did bring so much of the responsibility of making decisions on the legal status of abortion back to the states and back to local communities. Communities, we um, found that Walking with Moms has been really providential to be there in those local communities to be able to catch women who might um, be affected by this decision and be in greater need of support and pastoral care. There is a, a charge I hear levied all the time, and you hear it too, everyone hears it, that pro-life people like us, we only care about the baby before the baby's born, and after that, we, we wash our hands. I happen to know it's not true. Um, I happen to know that people who care about unborn babies have that same level of care for babies that have already been born and, and really for human beings that are vulnerable at any stage of their lives. But it is a charge that's lobbed against us. And I, I'm wondering, are you trying to make, um, make connections between the, the good-hearted, generous people in, sitting in the pews and all these parishes and actual people in need in ways that are practical? Because I find that yeah. it's that practical, how do you find the need and then find the people who mm -hmm. want to relieve the need and then put those two groups together? That's a great question, uh, Gracie. And absolutely, that is a, a significant goal of walking with moms in need. I think the greatest, the greatest slander <laughs> in, in modern times are against you know, pro-life people who have been the ones to actually offer genuine alternatives to women who are facing a challenging pregnancy. If you walk into a 
Planned Parenthood or an abortion clinic and you say, hey, I don't have anywhere to live. I have an abusive boyfriend. I am pregnant and I you know, don't have a great job situation right now. What do I do? They're unlikely to say, hey, you know, here, we, we have this, this maternity home that you can go visit or, hey, you know, we can help you get a better job situation and we will try to help you find a safe place to live or give you some rent to tide you over. However, there are absolutely Catholic organizations in place that do that. There are pregnancy care centers that make those connections already. And so Walking with Moms and Need really does try to do, Gracie, as you said so well, is to identify those local resources that are already in existence, both direct pro-life pregnancy resources and also the broad, uh, the broad swath of resources available through the Catholic Church. Walking with Moms and Need is fundamentally a process where parishes come together and parishioners, people in the pews, come together to identify local resources, including existing pregnancy care center ministries and pro-life ministries, but also resources like Catholic hospitals, Catholic charities, St. Vincent de Paul, this wide array of services that the Catholic Church offers people truly from the womb to the tomb, and connecting all of those resources, building strong relationships between their parishes and these helping agencies and nonprofits. And ultimately, it involves discerning really more effective ways to communicate the help that's already out there and already available to women locally, and also involving parishioners in a, a response where they're, they're, they know what, what is out there and that they are personally able. If a woman comes to them and says, hey, I'm pregnant or my sister is pregnant and she doesn't know what to do, they know what the resources out there are and, and where to connect uh, women to those resources. Chelsea, since you're the hands-on person in implementing this fantastic and visionary program, can you tell us how, how is it actually playing out on the ground? Maybe you could share a success story with us in a particular diocese to sort of illustrate how this actually works on the ground. Absolutely. Um, it's been just really incredible to see how um, it's been spreading very much often at the grassroots level on ways of parishioners and Catholics who are really energized by the mission and who who want to serve. Um, and so we're seeing participation all across the country. You know, we know that it's been perhaps a little slower than our initial launch would have um, anticipated, but we do trust in God's providence and the movements of the Holy Spirit and how he's, he's using this um, in his perfect ways. So for example, there's a parish in the Diocese of Orange in California who had a pregnancy center just about a mile away from the from the local parish. And so they they um, really ran with walking with moms in need, really kind of from the earliest um, phases of, of this program and started really developing a strong relationship with that pregnancy center, organizing volunteers, so much so that they were so involved that the pregnancy center changed their intake form to ask women coming in in need of assistance if they would like to be matched with a mentor from the local parish. So not only are they getting that practical support from the pregnancy center, they're also being paired with spiritual support and companionship and friendship from from volunteers at their local parish. And and through some of these these connections, you know, they were able to find that there was one woman who had, I think it was eight children and was pregnant in need of assistance. And they found out that her, she was actually Catholic and her other children had not been baptized because there was some type of fee associated um, with that baptismal process and they couldn't afford it. And so they were able to take care of that. And she was able to have all of her children baptized and brought into the church. Um, So it's really, you know, even beyond just basic pregnancy support, it's that holistic evangelization and 
and really bringing souls to Christ. Also, another great story is out of Miami, where there was a parish that recognized that a lot of the women in need of the pregnancy support services for their, from their local center weren't able to make it. Um, there is a large population of agricultural workers who didn't have the transportation and the hours didn't exactly align with their schedules. So they worked with the pregnancy center who actually shut down their operations one day and brought their mobile unit out to the parish um, nearby where the, where these women could actually access the services. And they provided all of them, brought, brought the pregnancy center to them. Um, and then as part of follow-up, they did organize fundraisers and donations to buy Uber gift cards so that um, these women would be able to access ongoing pregnancy care um, and be able to access transportation to the vital appointments that they had. What beautiful stories, Chelsea. I'm in Miami and I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And we have we have a huge migrant population in the Homestead area. And it's true, it's very difficult to make it to Miami. And it's even costly if you're riding the bus and you're going to lose a whole day of work. So what a pretty, what a pretty uh, idea from the Pregnancy Care Center. Are you connecting these wonderful ideas that happen in one parish, in one diocese? Are you, is, is part of the program making like these best practices and, and broadening them and, and showing them to other people and giving them good ideas in another part of the country? Absolutely. We do have regular webinars and other types of, of virtual events where we, we do share these success stories. We also try to share them on our social media pages. I think that the best way for parishes is certainly is to, is to see the stories and get, and get these ideas, but really to go through, to first go through anyone who's interested in potentially sorry, moms in need, to go through our action guide because it is so thorough in sharing different ways to use the walking with moms need process to fit any parish and any parish situation, whether they already have a strong pregnancy care ministry or not. And um, and then certainly the these wonderful stories, I think, also help in illustrating how to put that action guide to use. Right. And just so, to add to what Kat said, um, you know, the, in the action guide, we give, you know, countless examples of how parishes could step in and ideas for how they could um, re respond to the needs of their community, look at their unique gifts. Um, however, some of these things, that's why, you know, this is parish-based. It's because only parishes that are in touch with these women in their communities are going to know their specific needs. So, yeah. um, for example, you know, the story out of Miami, like only that parish could come up with something like that. Um, so it is, you know, really allowing the Holy Spirit to guide this process um, to use what we've provided as a template and to, of course, find inspiration from, you know, the work being done around the country, but to also know that, um, you know, parishes are the experts on their communities and the women in them that need to be served. So you're absolutely right I've, that this um, the templates are really well thought through. I've read through all of the material and I was so impressed at how organized it is and how it's really very simple in a sense. It's really turnkey um, the way you've designed this program. But what the program really needs, it sounds like, is more volunteers and yeah. our listeners our listeners are really good-hearted people who are always looking for ways to be helpful. So, so if somebody wants to volunteer for walking with moms in need, it sounds like it could be as simple as putting a sign, you know, one of those signs outside of the church that we've all seen, you know, pregnant and in need, you know, need help, call this phone number. Um, and going to your um your your priest to just ask to get this started so, so i mean perhaps you exactly. could tell us 
what, what is sort of what's the first step for a listener who wants to volunteer for this program? Is it talking to their parish priest? Uh, that is absolutely the first step. But I would say that even before that first actual step of talking to the pastor, which is primary, um, but but even just before that, just going to walkingwithmoms.com, our website, and taking a look at our action guide summary. There is a like five to eight page summary of our much more in-depth action guide that explains what Walking With Moms is. And then after familiarizing yourself with the Walking With Moms process, going to your pastor, exactly as you said, Maureen, and, and saying and making it clear that you want to get this started at your parish and you are ready to to get this started yourself, that you are ready to volunteer. Because as we know, so many pastors are so burdened. Even post-COVID, so many of the parishes are not back to normal <laughs> yet, even though it's, uh, gosh, years afterwards. Um, there's Parish life hasn't completely returned to what it was. And even, even before the pandemic, pastors were overburdened. So taking that responsibility as lady to... To take a look at the materials, just you know, get it, get accustomed to the idea, and then absolutely making that personal connection with your pastor and saying, "I want to do this. I'm going to get a group together. We want to do this at our parish," and offering to take that burden, you know, on yourself. And I, I call it a burden. Really, it's a gift. So much of walking with moms is, is really, as you said, very simple. It's all laid out. Everything that you need to do. It, the resources are all free, and it's laid out very clearly how to get this started at your parish. The, the essential need, exactly as you said, are volunteers, and their first step is to go to their pastor and say, I want to get this started at our parish so we can walk with moms in need. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson, and we are learning more about the great efforts of Walking with Moms in Need, a USCCB initiative with Kat Talalas and Chelsea Gomez of the Office of the Pro-Life Secretariat. Chelsea, what, if any, uh, chilling effect or, or fear have you have you experienced out there or heard about in the in the different dioceses with all the different attacks on pregnancy care centers and, and churches that we've been experiencing since Dobbs? One, for instance, in my own archdiocese, one of our pregnancy care centers was was um, vandalized with really aggressive, violent rhetoric one one day over Memorial Day weekend, and our, our volunteers were quite scared. Have you been hearing? things like this from other parts of the country? Thankfully, we haven't. Um, specifically, we do know these these terrible, you know, acts of violence are are on the rise. And I do think there is um, certainly a need to, to be conscious of that and to take appropriate steps um, to keep everyone safe and um, to be prudent. But I think um, what's actually been really um, encouraging is that even though we're seeing that rise of those stories in the news um, across the country, you know, it really has not um, waylaid any of our, our volunteers, those who are passionate about this. Um, if anything, I think it just shows how much, how needed um, our services yeah. are um, when they're under attack. Um, you know, we know the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. And yeah. um, when they see these persecutions, I think it's, it really is a reminder of, of what's at stake and it's, and like I said, it has not discouraged um, our local volunteers in their mission. And so just to see their courage um, in the face of, of, of attacks or persecutions, um, you know, they really care about the women in need and, and they don't want to let um, these fears keep them from serving them. So, so this work of expanding the pro-life 
safety net. Um, it can be pretty simple, it sounds like, in terms of getting parishioners to uh, connect with a local pregnancy center and volunteer there or, or support them financially. But I've also seen a couple reports of um, more ambitious projects, which are very inspiring. Yeah. And I just read something recently about um, in Los Angeles, the diocese turned one of their empty convents into a maternity home. And I thought, what a beautiful response here um, as we're, you know, facing the challenges of living in a post-real world. So have you heard of that sort of thing going on? Because, uh, it, you know, pregnancy centers are, you know, beyond marvelous and heroic in the work they do, but the maternity homes uh, really get to the, the longer term need. And, you know, we've heard so many success stories from women coming out of these maternity homes. Um, I'm wondering if you um, have had much uh, experience with maternity homes. Well, we absolutely have a very close relationship, uh, praise God, with the Sisters of Life who've been incredibly supportive of walking with moms in need and who are actually, um, you know, doing versions of walking with moms in, in Arizona and in New York. And so they, the Sisters of Life, for those listeners who are maybe, might not be as familiar, have this beautiful ministry of, of accompaniment to pregnant and parenting moms. I mean, they, they truly, they never let anyone fall through the cracks. And, um, and they have been such a model to us of what is possible, you know, through the power of God and the Holy Spirit. So we, we absolutely, with Walking With Moms, have a very close relationship with the Sisters of Life and, and love their model of walking and wel- welcoming women into their home. Um, as far as other parishes or other dioceses taking up the maternity home model. I think a lot of them are right now trying to make connections to maternity homes that are already, that already exist and spotlighting what is, what is already there in terms of resources. Um, as, and also too, I think an important thing uh, to remember with what is already, it's, it's sometimes hard to gauge what is already happening with walking with moms or what's underway, partly because many parishes just began the process of walking with moms in need. And that process first involves uh, an inventory, taking inventory of what already exists and then analyzing and then committing to a response. So many of the places who started walking with moms in need are not yet in the place of starting their big project, like a maternity home or a pregnancy center or another large project yet, but we might be seeing that in the coming months and certainly in the coming years. In my church, and I think it must be very common across the United States, we have a very nice pro-life ministry. It's, I think, all women. And lots, of, lots of older ladies, and and they're very, they're very committed to praying and mm-hmm. and and the little projects that that we do, like baby bottle campaigns and things like that. Mm-hmm. Is is this the appropriate group to to approach and say, hey, there's this wonderful new initiative? Because you'd be surprised, or maybe you're not surprised because you're at the USCCB and you know how these things go. That sometimes <laughs> all this, like the information, doesn't filter down into the that granular level where somebody's going to take charge yeah. and say. Um, let's let's you know let's use our pro-life ministry in this way or attach ourselves to this yeah. great program from the USCCB. 
Great. Well, that's a great question there. I think there are two important points to address. One is that, first and foremost, no matter what a parish is already doing, whether they're already doing something as comprehensive as, say, the Gabriel Project or Prepares, or whether they have absolutely nothing for pregnancy care ministry, Walking with Moms in Need can help them because it is about connecting people in the parish to resources that are already existing and creating those resources where they don't exist. So, yes, if there is already a great group of women who are, you know, volunteering and praying and getting baby blankets, like they can absolutely participate in walking with moms and walking with moms need is not meant to displace them or, you know, step on what it is they're already doing, but to enhance it and to expand it. Um, But the second thing is who is maybe the best person to start walking with moms? And I think there are many answers to that based on the needs of the parish. What's wonderful about walking with moms in need is it's, it's all about service. I mean, nothing in walking with moms in need mentions abortion actually, because it's fundamentally about offering genuine alternatives, genuine support to women in a challenging pregnancy. And so truly anyone can get behind this, even if they've never been involved with pro-life ministry before, even if they're uncomfortable with pro-life advocacy in the legal way, walking with moms in need is something that I think everyone who has a a spirit of charity can get behind because it's about helping the most vulnerable women in our country. We know that a lot of women, you know, who are particularly women who are vulnerable to abortion, 85% of them are unmarried, three quarters are below the poverty line. These are the most, they're, they're alone in so many ways. And this is about offering resources. It is about saying, what is out there? What does this woman need? Does she need a friend? Does she need a ride to the Catholic clinic for a checkup? Does she need assistance with rent? You know, if I were in her shoes, what would I need? And how can I get that to her? How can our parish help her? And and if you already have a program in place that does something like that, Walking with Moms Need will help you promote it. <laughs> so, um so I, I think absolutely the leaders can be people who've already, who, who are already involved with certain aspects of pro-life ministry, but it's just as possible that we can get new parishioners in there looking at this question in a different way or coming from a different perspective who, can, who are equally capable of um, taking walking with mom's need and running with it. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me because I do know people who see the pro-life ministry as sort of a, sort of a political, you know, praying in front of yeah. centers and they don't. They don't Right. feel that they want to be out there um yeah. you know being in your face about about their beliefs right. but i know that they want to help and they want to yeah. to be that supportive person who who because they are people are full of generosity and and full of love yeah. in their hearts for their struggling brothers and sisters so i i do see i see that that, that there is a wonderful well of people there that we can find and draw on absolutely yeah and as you said i mean i we have I, so much love and gratitude for those sidewalk warriors who are praying those rosaries and who are doing so much good, you know, for um, women who are approaching a pregnancy care center. But walking with moms need is, is different from that. It, it's not, it doesn't displace it and it, it doesn't replace it. Um, it it's, it's a different way of looking at pregnancy care ministry. And it, it, and yes, people who are not comfortable personally doing that have a, have a place in walking with moms in need for sure. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea and Kat, for joining us and talking to us and informing us, giving us this great update on Walking with Moms in Need, a wonderful initiative from the USCCB Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities. Thank you for your time. And tell us again the website where our listeners can go and find out more and then start this wonderful project at their parish. Thank you so much. And it is www.walkingwithmoms.com.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. For the rest of the show, we're going to have Nathaniel Hurd with us from the Religious Freedom Institute discussing something in the same ballpark, an eye-opening report from the RFI about religious pro-life Americans being under attack. We've seen the headlines, but this new report really offers a comprehensive look at how bad it really is. Welcome to the show, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me. Nathaniel, I'm so glad that the RFI conducted uh, this research and wrote this report about religious pro-life Americans suffering under the attacks of of the unhinged pro-choice left, as I think of them. We have a center, me, we meaning me at the Archdiocese of Miami, we have, a, uh, we have three centers, pro-life pregnancy centers, and one of them was, ter- was vilely attacked um, over Memorial Day weekend, even before, before Dobbs was decided, with, with violent um, threats spray-painted on the wall. And, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to express how incongruous that is. I mean, this is a little storefront in a, in a place that's very, it's a very modest place, and, and we do sort of modest things. We help women with their small, mater- small material needs uh, that they have around their pregnancies. So to see these violent threats uh, on, this, on this wall was very shocking to the volunteers that work there and to all of us who are involved. But as your report shows, we are certainly not alone. So can you tell our listeners, please, um, sort of the landscape of these religious attacks? Sure, and uh, just to underscore the point that you made, I mean, the, the ugliness of the violence is in such contrast to uh, the beautiful work that uh, the pregnancy center that you volunteer with and ones across the country do every way, helping uh, women and their children uh, unborn and, and born uh, each, each and every day. Uh, what we've observed um, over the course of the last few months is an explosion of violent attacks. This is not just an East Coast problem. It's not a West Coast problem. It's a national problem. Um, but by the time we issued our report, there had been uh, criminal attacks on at least 63 uh, pro-life organizations, mostly uh, pregnancy resource centers across uh, 26 states and the District of Columbia. And the attacks included um, uh, death threats, uh, arson in a number of instances, uh, mobs showing up and smashing windows, uh, threatening and vile graffiti uh, and other and other forms of crimes. Um, and I think one of the things that has been very concerning for for us is that uh, the the response, at least at the at the federal level, um, from the FBI and from the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, has mostly been silence. The only times that they've really addressed this, uh, epidemic has been when they've been pressed by members of Congress, either in hearings or, or, or in other fora. We hear a lot these days about domestic extremism. We heard from President Biden very recently in a very fiery speech about how this is the this is the terrible threat that's going on right now in America against de- against our democracy, against our way of life. Of course, I, I, I maybe not of course, but it was natural. It seemed natural to me that he didn't mention these kinds these attacks particularly but isn't it fair to to lump them in with any kind of domestic extremism that you might talk about in the US certainly and what our report highlights what the threat uh, this threat assessment highlights is that a lot of the ideologies whether it is marxism or 
uh, anarchism and other kinds of ideologies um, that we saw on full display in um, the summer of uh, 2020 in some in some instances. Um, the same kind of perpetrators are appear to be conducting these attacks. And one thing I would just note for your listeners is that these attacks on uh, pro-life pregnancy resource centers and advocacy organizations have been preceded by uh, similarly violent criminal attacks on Catholic sites, mostly Catholic churches, uh, across the United States going all the way back to uh, spillover from some of the George Floyd protests in late May of 2020. Um, As of the issuing of our report, um, by our count, there had been uh, attacks on at least 174 Catholic sites, again, mostly churches, um, in 38 states plus the District of, uh, of Columbia. And this culture of uh, silence um, from law enforcement, from elected officials, from the media, has in turn contributed to a, silent, uh, a culture of impunity which leads uh, people to think that they can commit these crimes and, and get away with them. It makes a lot of sense to me that the, that the, that the left would be incensed at the Catholic Church at the, uh, for the end of Roe. The Catholic Church obviously has this great institutional weight and heft, and, they, and we, <laughs> being part of the Church, we have played an outsized part in, 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 in ending Roe. Um, for instance, in the, the many Catholics on the Supreme Court, just as a small instance. But why you refer back to the George Floyd protests uh, and back in 2020, this was long before um, this had happened with, with Dobbs, with the, with the Dobbs case. Why do you think uh, in, that, in that case that the church is put in the crosshairs? Uh, so uh, one of the things that's very striking about the attacks on Catholic churches is that uh, you know, when you when you see a Catholic church in your in your local community, you know, you know, even if you're not a religious person, you know what the Catholic Church uh, has said and done on questions of life and marriage and human sexuality and the distinctions between uh, men and women over the years. Uh, the church really has been a, a defender and a guardian of reality about about the human person. Um, you might look at a, let's say, a non-denominational evangelical church in the same community, which may also be pro-life and marriage and family, um, but it's less likely that you would know that for sure, whereas with a Catholic church, you know that with 100% certainty. Um, so what we've seen um, in terms of attacks on churches, they have almost entirely been directed at uh, Catholic churches in this kind of May 2020 period uh, moving forward. Interestingly, the attacks on pro-life organizations, uh, it's a mix. Um, some of them are, are Catholic, um, like the one that you volunteer with. Others are run by um, evangelical Christians. Uh, and so here, evangelicals and Catholics who have been working shoulder to shoulder in the pro-life movement over the years found themselves, in, in the form of these organizations, found themselves under attack. One of the things that we note in the report is that while the attacks on churches have prim- primarily di- been directed at Catholic churches, that other pro-lifers, uh, be they uh, Protestant of some kind or Orthodox, may find themselves uh, under attack as well at some point in the future. And why do you think, uh, I'm sure there's more than one reason, why do you think that there has been very little response from from law 
uh, enforcement from the pol- from politicians that you would think, being Catholics themselves, they would uh, they would cry out against these these um, these terrible instances of religious intolerance. I think it comes down to um, a change of culture. Um, in in our country, it used to be that if if a place of worship was attacked, regardless of the faith tradition, regardless of their views about some of the more contentious uh, matters of the day, that if they were violently attacked, then everyone would condemn it, and law enforcement and our elected representatives would respond vigorously to that. That seems to have have frayed. Um, you still see um, that kind of response uh, when there are attacks on some other uh, religious communities, um, but not so with the attacks on Catholic churches, and not so with the attacks on pro-life organizations. There really seems to have developed, at least in the minds of some, two different standards of uh, of justice and of law enforcement, um, depending on the views of, of the victims, uh, when it comes to things like uh, like abortion, and I think it's on all of us to press our elected representatives, to to press our government officials and our law enforcement agencies to have equal standards of justice and law enforcement, regardless of the victim. Another group of people in the United States that are often are attacked are the, are the uh, visibly Jewish communities, like the Orthodox Jews and the Hasidic Jews. Um, is, uh, would you say that the attacks against um, our religion of, of Catholicism are approaching that kind of level, or are they equal, or is, is it still outstripping, um, the, are the, Jewish, uh, the uh, anti-Jewish attacks still outstripping ours? We're not there yet. If you look at the the hate crimes statistics that the FBI has been required to collect and publicly report going all the way back to uh, to the 1990s, um, by several factors, the Jewish community uh, is more targeted than any other religious community in the United States. In other words, um, more uh, crimes that are committed where there's a visible anti-religious uh, bias related to that particular community by at least twice, sometimes three times the amount of the next closest group uh, Jews, Jews are targeted. And that is still the case. Um, the difference is that um, there is a response. You know, law enforcement responds vigorously. They investigate. They arrest. They prosecute. Uh, convictions are often secured. There's a public outcry, as there should be. Um, and I think what we need and, and hope for is the same standard when it comes to attacks on other communities. One thing I would just say is that, you know, certainly synagogues um, have been attacked over the years in Jewish community centers. One of the things that the RFI investigation is going to be looking at is the extent to which um, these attacks on uh, uh, on Catholic churches over the last few years, whether there's anything comparable to it. At least in the public reporting, we're not aware of it. You can certainly find instances of attacks on, on synagogues and Jewish community centers. Uh, a lot of the attacks that we've seen against Jews over the years uh, have been on individuals. As you noted, uh, Jews in some instances, especially the Orthodox and conservative, are very visible in their religiosity. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, 26 cases of arson against Catholic churches uh, over the last few years, um, we're not aware of anything comparable to that, um, but we need to dig into the data and, uh, and look to, to see exactly what the facts are. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're here with Nathaniel Hurd of the Religious Freedom Institute talking about their most recent report on attacks against religious pro-lifers and also churches. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. When, when, our, in, when our place was attacked back in May, um, they signed their their work. They were called Jane's Revenge. And I haven't actually, and maybe you don't know the answer to this. I haven't, I looked into it at the time and I don't know if finally was that determined to be an organized group or are there people signing on to these uh, monikers just because they see them on social media? It's probably a mixture of both. Um, one of the things that we're uh, doing at the Religious Freedom Institute is we're, we're undertaking a multi-year investigation into attacks on religious institutions where the response from law enforcement and elected officials and media is, is inadequate, is, is weak. And uh, one of the things that we are going to be doing with the help of some former law enforcement uh, professionals who will be um, working with on this is looking at exactly that question. To what extent are perpetrators, are these criminals, individuals who are just uh, inspired by groups uh, who are copying attacks uh, in other places, and to what extent is there sort of a national, more coordinated effort behind this? That's one of the things that we're going to be looking into. So what is what, what do you hope to accomplish with your report? Besides that, and I love that, I love that you're, it's multi-year and that you're bringing in this idea of how exactly law enforcement is responding or failing to respond. Um, but what is the overarching um, thing you're trying to accomplish with your report? In, in, the, in the immediate term, uh, we're hoping that um, we can contribute to a, a real push for law enforcement professionals to do their job, for elected officials to do their job, for reporters to do their job. Um, they, they haven't, to some degree, uh, over the past few years, and certainly more recently with these attacks on pro-life organizations. So that's one thing. Secondly, uh, to contribute to a culture where we return to a consensus that if a, if a, a religious institution is violently attacked, then there is going to be outcry and there's going to be action uh, taken in response to that. Um, I would also say uh, we're hoping for uh, to contribute to more preparedness. Um, a number of pro-life organizations, as well as individual parishes and dioceses and others, um, are just not adequately prepared for these kind of attacks. And there are some very practical steps that they can take to make themselves uh, more prepared. Um, and that our, our next report, our next um, kind of interim report, is going to be focusing uh, is going to be focusing on that. And the last thing that I would just say is that you know these attacks on pro-life organizations um, were first and foremost an attack on people and on property, but they are also attacks on religious freedom itself in the United States. Religious freedom is either for everyone or it is for no one. And if it is truly for everyone, then that means regardless of how members of a uh, specific uh, religious community or organization um, land on something like abortion, um, they should not be subject to a violent attack without any kind of consequences. So uh, preparedness, action by officials, change of culture, 
and uh, pushing back on these attacks on religious freedom. Well, that sounds like something that is very, very needed um, and not something I've heard anyone really concentrating on. In fact, um, most people don't seem very surprised that these attacks happen and then no one talks about them again. I asked, I called our the pro-life uh, director here at the Archdiocese of Miami just last week, and I asked, have, have we had any progress from law enforcement on, on this, on our own particular case? And she's heard nothing. The local FBI looked into it, but she hasn't heard anything back from them either. And she's not surprised. She didn't think that anything would come of it. So thank you very much, Nathaniel, and thank you to the, to the whole Religious Freedom Institute for shining a spotlight on this. Where can our listeners learn more about your organization? Sure. Um, you can go to our website, uh, rfi.org. Um, you can find the report and uh, more information about our organization. And thank you for your interest in the, in the subject. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when he will give us what is probably the most confusing story in any part of the gospel, what's popularly called the parable of the dishonest steward. This story can make people wonder whether truth incarnate is praising a crooked business manager for deception, whether he who gave us the commitment, thou shalt not steal, is himself praising someone for violating it. But Jesus is doing no such thing. In order to grasp what Jesus was and was not saying, however, and what the crucial lesson is for us, we need first to understand something about the way loans were done in the ancient world. In the parable, a manager is about to get sacked because he was squandering the property of his business owner. His boss gave him his pink slip and told him to do an audit of the books prior to his dismissal. So the man called in the tenant farmers who owed his employer money or items and reduced their debts considerably. At first glance, this seems like dishonesty, like he was allowing these debtors to steal from his boss, but it wasn't. In the ancient world, the way loans were conducted was that the manager or broker would be paid by adding on something to what was borrowed, rather than a percentage taking out of the master's proceeds. For example, if someone borrowed 50 barrels of oil, he would have to pay back the 50 to the master and another 10 or 30 or 50 to the broker, whatever the broker thought he could get. The dishonest steward was probably tacking on way too big of a commission, and in order to maximize profits, was probably, like Fanny and Freddy in our own times, lending out the master's property to very bad risks allowing people in the master's fields who were going to waste it rather than produce. Hence, when the manager called in those who owed, for example, 100 containers of wheat and reduced the amount to 80, what he was almost assuredly doing was eliminating most or all of his commission. Therefore, he wasn't really allowing them to steal from his owner. He was eliminating his own take. Faced with the decision of saving his life by making friends who would take care of him after he was fired, we're trying to hold out to the end to the possibility of making money via these commissions. He chose to save his life. His master, and through the master in the parable Jesus, calls this prudent and wise. What's the application to us? 
Jesus wants us to learn good stewardship from this dishonest steward. God has given each of us tremendous gifts on the base of which we have made handsome profits by doing good and well in the world. He's given us our hands, which we use to work. He's given us our brains, which we use to think. He's given us our family and friends, our education, our lives, and so many other blessings. With these gifts, we have profited and made a manifold commission. But have we been using these gifts fundamentally to build up our kingdom or to build up the master's? If we've been living selfishly until now, if we've been squandering his gifts and the things of this world, Jesus gives us this parable to help us see that our time is coming to an end and that we need to prepare an accounting. He wants us, like the steward in the gospel, to start to sacrifice our commissions, our possessions, our time for others, so that they may remember us and be our supporters and welcome us into, as Jesus says, eternal homes. The implication is that if we don't want to do the right thing simply because it's right, if we don't want to love others because we're Christian, then at least we should do so because it is in our eternal best interest. Like the steward in the parable, we're all faced with the choice between trying to keep our profits or save our life. We can't take money or possessions with us as we go. The only thing that fits through the eye of the needle are acts of love. Jesus wants us to remember always that the poor and needy are our eternal money changers. Those <coughs> who take earthly currency and turn it into something moths can't eat, rust corrode, or the IRS can't confiscate an inheritance taxes. Through this parable, Jesus wants us to be as prudent in the spiritual realm as greedy businessmen are in the material realm. If we use whatever God has given us in this world to love and take care of others, at our judgment, they will be among those in heaven who welcome us into the Father's eternal house. Jesus will turn to us and tell us that whatever we did for them as his least brothers and sisters, we did to him. Immediately after the Sunday's parable, Jesus gives us clearly one of the lessons he wants us to draw. That the children of this age are shrewder in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. What Jesus was saying is that people who are worldly are often much more prudent than believers when it comes to making choices that concern their survival. Business owners, if they know that a certain practice is losing them money, try to fix it right away. If they can't, they eliminate it. They know that in order to survive, they've got to cut their losses. Otherwise, they'll end up in chapter 11. We Christians, however, when we know that a certain thing is losing us God's grace, seldom act in so decisive and intelligent a way. Even though such a serious sin might send us into eternal bankruptcy, we often don't get rid of it. Jesus instructs us, however, to act with bottom-line brutality in the Sermon on the Mount, to pluck out our eye or chop off our hand or foot if it causes us to sin. But few of us follow his advice. The failure to cut out sinful behavior from our life is, for Jesus, simply stupid. Sinning in such a way is cooperating with the devil. And that would be like a businessman employing someone whom he knows will steal from him and try to destroy his business. By this parable, Jesus is essentially telling us to use our heads, to be smart about our salvation. His words are like a group of business consultants who come in to analyze a failing business, find out where the inefficiencies are, and design a business plan not only to save the company, but make it thrive. But the key is not just the information and knowing what needs to be done but in having the wisdom, courage, and resolve to implement the plan. That's what Jesus is proposing to us with urgency. Unlike in the parable 
when we meet him face to face, we'll have no time to return to fix things. We have to fix them now. If we've been selfish with our gifts, if we haven't been putting God first, if we've been neglecting those left in ditches on the side of the road, the time is now to use our heads to do so. If we've been trying to compromise with a sin, the time is now to change. Now is the time for us to be as shrewd about storing up for ourselves heavenly wealth as billionaires are to increase their fortunes here on earth. We and those we're laying down our lives to serve cannot serve both God and mammon. We cannot worship God in the golden calf. We can't be led by the spirit and at the same time remain materialistic consumers. We can't be sons and daughters of the eternal father and seek the inheritance offered by the prince of this world. Just as the steward in the parable couldn't try to keep all his commission and win the favor of those who owed him. So we and everyone must choose between storing up treasure and pleasure in this world or using everything we have in this world to store up eternal treasure and happiness in the next. This is a choice the rich young man was presented by Jesus and sadly refused to take. This Sunday, out of love, Jesus offers all of us Catholics the same deal, urging us to seize it and obtain the pearl of great price. The time for our accounting, Jesus reminds us this Sunday, will come. And for some of us, sooner than we expect, the Lord calls us urgently and always to be ready to render an account by living lives consistent with self-giving love rather than self-centered selfishness. If we're faithful in these small things, we'll be faithful in big things. Our fidelity to Mass, in which we encounter Christ's daily fidelity, is meant to overflow into all parts of life and make it Eucharistic. At Mass, we learn from Jesus how to put God above material things and how to make our lives a commentary on the words of consecration, sacrificing ourselves for others. As we prepare for Sunday, we ask the Lord whom we hunger to receive to help us imitate his own wisdom and way of life so that when it comes time for us to render an account for all the blessings he's given us, he may praise us eternally for acting shrewdly. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 